Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in 2 Kings chapter 2. We are reading verses 1 through 14. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces and took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other and Elisha went over. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we acknowledge that your word's perfect, reviving the soul, that your testimonies are sure, making the simple wise, that your commands are pure, enlightening our eyes, and that your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. And so we come eagerly today. We ask that we may have light and truth from you. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Through the fall, as we've worked through First and Second Kings, we've seen that there it's important to read this book well. We read history, history about the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel and their kings. It's history that chronicles the fidelity and the infidelity of those kings. It chronicles their virtues and their vices. 
It chronicles their obedience and also their disobedience. It's not romanticized history told through rose-colored glasses. It's honest, self-reflective history that's brutal in its honesty at times. And its brutality is designed to lead us to reflect, to induce us to live in faith and repentance in the church. And so we're invited to listen, to reflect on that virtue and on that vice, to reflect on that faithfulness and those failures, to reflect on the obedience and the disobedience. And all of that reflection is to teach us about God, to learn about his ways, and also to learn about ourselves. And so this is a deeply prophetic book in which it provides a mirror in which we are to see ourselves. But it's also important to note that we're not just introduced to the kings of the northern and the southern kingdoms of ancient Israel. We're also introduced to another company of people called the prophets. A prophet was one commissioned by God to speak on his behalf, especially when there was a situation of decay and deterioration. In 1 Kings 17, several chapters ago, we were introduced to the prophet Elijah. He was a servant sent to the Old Testament church from God. 1st and 2nd Kings makes this point emphatically because Elijah just suddenly appears without any background information in chapter 17 verse 1. He simply is sent by God to the king of northern Israel Ahab with a message. He appears out of nowhere. And then today as we close the narrative about Elijah in 2nd Kings chapter 2 we see not only does he appear from nowhere, but he also disappears. Just as he came, as mysteriously as he entered into our story, now he disappears, caught up in a whirlwind into heaven to be in the presence of God. In the chapters between this mysterious appearance and this mysterious disappearance, Elijah speaks God's word in a time of tremendous compromise. The church was departing from its foundations, participating in a worship that was not sanctioned by God. They had crafted golden bulls for themselves, installing one in the north in Dan and one in the south in Bethel. And then also, not only had they made golden bulls and were they bowing before carved images, they were also participating in the worship of false gods. They had adopted the gods of the Phoenicians, the Baals, and the Ashtoreths. These decisions then led to further ethical compromises. And we've seen that in breaking the first table of the law, the first four commandments of ten, that inevitably when we have shattered those, the remaining six will be shattered as well. And the people had given themselves over to the devices and the desires of their own hearts. And so in many regards, as Elisha enters into the scene, as he ministers the word of God, in the midst of all of that compromise, we've seen that he's a hero. But we've also been introduced gradually to a shadow side of Elijah. He wasn't just bold and courageous as a prophet. He also has his faults. 
His life, too, is characterized by virtue and by vice. vice. It is characterized by fidelity and also by failures. It's characterized by obedience and disobedience. And if we're to read Kings well, we have to recognize that. And so through his example, both good example and bad example, we're invited to see God's call on the church in the midst of compromised and difficult times. And so it's a very simple question that we will ask and that we will answer this morning. What do we learn from the life of Elijah? Tracing that from 1 Kings 17 to this final climatic moment where he's taken up into the presence of God. Three things that we'll focus on. First, we'll see what it looks like to exercise faith under pressure. Second, we'll see the temptations that faith encounters under that pressure. And third, we'll see something of God's overwhelming commitment to us despite our failures. So let's consider each of these. First, what it looks like to exercise faith under pressure. As we follow that history in these chapters from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings chapter 2, We see the main way that Elijah exercises his faith under pressure is that he speaks the word of God. He serves as the mouthpiece of God to a corrupt and to a decaying church. He ministers to that corrupt church, calling them to lay down their empty and false gods, those things in which they were transferring their trust to. In particular, the church was looking to the Baals. And Baal was believed to be the god of the storm who brought life and fertility because he brought the rains. Twice a year, it was thought that Baal rode in upon the clouds and provided life for the land. And Elijah is calling the church away from this false and empty worship, that this God was no God, that he couldn't provide the rains, that he couldn't provide life, that he wouldn't give you fertility because simply he didn't exist. Elijah doesn't suffer fools. He confronts Ahab forcefully. Ahab was a violent and also a vindictive man, and he didn't just confront him once, but three different times we've seen that Elijah was in the presence of Ahab. And he also then confronts his son, Ahaziah. And Elijah's message can be summed up very helpfully as to the events of what happens in 1 Kings 18 at Mount Carmel. And it's there that we see the judgment and the power of God on display as God consumes an altar there in fire. If you remember, there was a contest set up in which two altars were constructed. And the prophets of Baal, who were great in number that day, were there celebrating their liturgies, calling on Baal to consume the sacrificial victim on the altar to bring fire from the heavens. And then Elijah was there watching all day. Elijah taunts them, asks them where their God is. Perhaps he's indisposed unable to come to their aid. And then there's this display of power in which fire falls from the heavens at the end of the day after Elijah says a very simple prayer. 
and the fire consumes the altar and consumes the sacrifice. But we saw that this wasn't just a display of power, was it? It wasn't just a display of judgment, but actually this display of fire consuming the sacrificial victim on the altar was a display of God's grace and God's mercy. That the sacrificial victim was consumed and it was consumed in an act of judgment in which one stood in place of another. And friends, this was pointing us to the cross of Jesus. All of the Old Testament sacrifices directing us this way to Jesus who stands in our place, who receives judgment on his head that was undeserved, but judgment that was rightly deserved by you. And God does that so that you can be reconciled through the one who was judged on your behalf. And friends, these are the dynamics of Elijah's ministry. There's a bruising message. There's a confrontation that takes place in which he calls the church back from the false and empty gods. And he calls the church to own those false and empty gods and to own what they've done. But not only is there a bruising message, there's a healing message. There's a gospel, a good news that's preached, that there's grace and there's mercy, that there's a forgiving God who lavishes us in that forgiveness. And so, yes, there is confrontation. But friends, in Elijah's ministry and in gospel ministry, there is also an affirmation. There is conflict, but yet there's also even deeper comfort. There is discord, but also there is even deeper consolation. These are the dynamics that define gospel ministry in Elijah's day and in our own day. And what we learn, though, is that the response, the response to these things for Elijah and the response to these things for you, it's all not always terribly encouraging. That as we announce the bruise and as we also announce the comfort that people aren't always fond of the message. In 1 Kings 18, verses 17 through 19, Ahab flips the script on Elijah. He says, actually, you are the troubler of Israel. And then in chapter 21, he actually even calls Elijah his enemy. All Elijah had done was spoken the word of the Lord, announcing the bruise and also announcing the comfort. And friends, what we learn here in this pressurized time in which the church was falling apart and Elijah is calling the church to return to its foundations. What we learn is that we are unable to control the response of the church. We're unable to control and manipulate and manage it. We don't know what it's going to be, that what we are called to control is the manner of the confrontation but we cannot control and we're not responsible for the response. We can't manage how those are going to hear who hear the message. We can't be. But friends, what we find in Elijah is one who just faithfully goes, that he obeys the word of God and he goes, he enters into the dialogue and that conversation, calling the church to repentance, pointing out its transfers of trust in which it was looking to empty gods and other things to fulfill what only God could give. And then also directing the church to the great sacrifice that God makes 
to what God does to reconcile us in all of our sinfulness and all of our wrong, pointing us to the grace and the mercy of God. This is what ministry looks like in pressurized and compromised times. It's not to become moralistic. It's not to batten down the hatches and try to get everything right, but it's actually to exult in the grace and the mercy of God, knowing that judgment has passed over us because there's one who stands in our place. And so ministry in those pressurized, compromised times we learn from Elijah is gospel ministry. It's to point to Jesus. It's to highlight him. It's to camp out and be centered there. But second, from this long ministry of the prophet, we also learn about the temptations that faith encounters under this pressure because these are real. And oftentimes when we read about heroes from the Bible, we don't desire to look at this shadow side and we're not always fond of considering it. But this is real and it's here for us and God has given it to us for a reason. There's three specific temptations that we find in Elijah's life that we need to pay close attention to. First, there's the temptation of despair. After this powerful display of God on Mount Carmel in which he consumes the sacrificial victim, where we have this awesome display of grace and judgment, Jezebel, Ahab's wife, then breathes out a threat of violence against Elijah in chapter 19, verse 2. Listen to what she says. She says, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She was speaking about the slain prophets. And here Elijah encounters the deep tension that defines each of our lives. And that tension was that there was a great victory and display of God's grace and judgment. It was public. It was manifested before all. And yet Jezebel and Ahab were still prosecuting their evil after that great display of victory. And friends, Elijah falls apart. He doesn't know what to do with this. Evil and compromise were still at hand despite the great victory. And Elijah didn't know how to respond. And we live in that same tension. Because the victory, the great final victory over sin, death, and evil has been accomplished. And yes, it's been accomplished not yesterday. Over 2,000 years ago in the death and the resurrection of Jesus trample down that already you as a Christian are victorious over all of that. And yet we still inhabit a world compromised and polluted by sin and death and evil. It is this tension that drags Elijah into despair. Elijah escapes Jezreel, the city where he was located, And he goes and takes refuge in the south in Judah. And then follow what happens. He travels a whole day's journey into the wilderness. And then he comes and he rests under a broom tree. And listen to what he says to God. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. Do you hear it? 
Do you hear the despair in that? That's not a good journal entry. This is an honest, searching moment where he's saying, God, it's, I'm done. It's enough. I want nothing more to do with this. He's resigning his office, pulling out into the woods, sitting down. He's quitting. And what is it that drives him to that place? It is this ongoing reality of evil. Despite his strong display of faith, he had now been pressed into despair. And friends, we have to deal with all of that complication if we're really going to know what it is to navigate a sincere and a mature Christian spirituality. To be able to say, yes, a man of faith like Elijah can go to those great heights and be used by God, and he can also collapse like this. Your frame is but dust, Psalm 103 says. And we're exposed to those temptations, and we're exposed to all of that weakness. And Elijah is asking the questions, is it all worth it? Is God actually there? Does it even matter? And friends, that's the temptation of despair. And anyone who engages in ministering the gospel to friends and to neighbors and to a city encounters all of that temptation. But second, we also see that there's a temptation towards self-pity. 1 Kings 19, after he retreats into the wilderness, he then goes further and he ends up at Horeb or what is Mount Sinai. And it's there on the mountain that twice God asks Elijah a question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And in a moment of obstinacy, Elijah twice answers God the same way. Listen to what he says. Chapter 19, verse 10, the first time. Verse 14, the second time. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You hear the lament? You hear the grief? I... I only am left. And now Ahab and Jezebel are seeking my life too. They're coming for me. But there is something important when you take in these chapters from chapter 17 into chapter 2 of 2 Kings. There is a very subtle disagreement with Elijah's statement that no, he was not the only one left. In fact, on multiple occasions, we learn that there are a number of other prophets. We just read of over a hundred of them in 2 Kings chapter 2. We learn that there are other faithful servants like Obadiah, who was in Ahab's court. We learn that there's a remnant of faithful believers who are still in the church, and God was preserving them. And so, yes, Elijah self-aggrandizes himself. In his despair, he gets a bit dramatic and he goes over the top. I, only I, am left. And friends, it's a classic moment of self-pity that those who get lost in the clutches of despair are prone to embrace. 
that I'm the only faithful one left. It's not the only place in scripture where we see God address that dynamic. The prophet Jonah outside the city of Nineveh learns much the same thing. Our Lord Jesus, in telling the parable of the two prodigal sons, not the son who went off into wild living, but the son who remained at home, full of the same self-pity. And friends, here's the danger of that self-pity. That's a perilous path that ends but in one place. It ends in self-righteousness. It's never ended anywhere else. And this is what happens here to Elijah, where he can see no one else who is serving the Lord. He can only count himself as a servant. And he draws attention to himself. And in a narcissistic pity party, here he is collapsing in on himself. It's good that he was drawn off to be by himself so no one else would have to see it. It's ugly. But this was his temptation towards self-pity. And those engaged in gospel ministry will know that temptation as well. Third, there's a temptation of disobedience. After he has this encounter with God in chapter 19, God then explains to Elijah what he's going to do. What he's going to do about this evil that is raging in Ahab and Jezebel and is still alive despite the great victory of God that's been displayed. And God tells Elijah that he's to anoint three people. Hazael, he was to go and anoint as the king of Syria. He was to anoint Jehu as the king of northern Israel. And then Elijah was to go and anoint a man named Elisha, who was to be his prophetic successor. It's important to carefully and closely read these chapters because when we do, we recognize that Elijah didn't do any of it. He didn't go and anoint Hazael. He didn't go and anoint Jehu. He didn't go and anoint Elisha. He actually just throws a coat on him and says to follow him. It's all kind of reluctant and quite ambivalent. It's less than enthusiastic. And as we read, there's more than a hint of reluctance in the entire story. Because what was happening, what was playing out is God was telling Elijah how he was going to right these wrongs. And God had whispered in a slow, soft whisper to Elijah. But what Elijah wanted, Elijah wanted a loud, thunderous, and public vindication from God. He didn't want this so slow and soft whisper playing itself out through these men, Hazael and Jehu and Elisha. He wanted it worked out through him. And his disobedience here reflects his deep frustration and his failure to accept the ways of God in the world. He didn't want anything to do with the way God was planning and intending to work this out. Elijah wanted fire from heaven. He wanted immediate intervention. And what he got was a slow-moving plan in which God would make things right. Elijah didn't like it. And because he didn't like it, guess what he didn't do? He didn't obey. 
And friends, it's important for us to search out the heart of our disobedience. Is it that we just don't like the command of God? Or perhaps we don't like the ways of God in his world, and so we don't want to submit to him. Elijah liked when God behaved as he expected him to. But then he wouldn't bow the knee to him when he didn't like his plans and when they didn't cooperate with his expectations. And these are the temptations that we too face. We have to look at those. These are the temptations that Elijah found himself face to face with as he ministered on God's behalf. Finally, as we learn from Elijah, we also see something of God's overwhelming commitment to us. 2 Kings chapter 2 We have all of this weakness, but yet, God doesn't disown Elijah. In the end, after his long and difficult service, God promises to take him up. In the Bible, we only encountered this twice, where God acts to take up servants in mysterious ways. But he takes Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. In chapter 2, verse 11, this is what we read. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horse of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And friends, this is the good news for us that God is overwhelmingly committed to you as his servants, as those he calls into a compromised and complicated world, as those he sends with his word into that world, that he is overwhelmingly committed to you personally, that he's not committed to you because you're a good prophet, that he's not committed to you because you're a good person, He's not committed to you because of achievements or accolades, things that you've accomplished for him. No, he's committed to you for one reason, and that's because judgment has fallen on his son instead of you. And you now have all of his favor, and you're his son, you're his daughter, adopted into his family and commissioned to go out into his service. And what we learn here from Elijah is that despite all of his failures, Despite all of his hesitations, despite his disobedience, despite his self-pity, despite all of his apathy, that God receives him, brings him home, calls him his own. Because you see, that atoning sacrifice on Mount Carmel, it wasn't just for the wayward Israelites who were giving themselves to the Baals. No, that atoning sacrifice was also for Elijah. That this is the ground and the foundation of the church. That the church only has relationship with God, not because it's superior to the world, not because we're any better, but simply because we've learned to look to that sacrifice and not just see a display of power, but to see a display of mercy, to see a display of judgment, that there has been judgment put upon the head of another in our place. And friends, that's what holds our lives together. That's what makes our lives coherent. 
in the middle of complicated and confusing and compromised times. This is the hope of the church because we look not to that altar on Carmel, but to the altar at Calvary. Our Lord Jesus giving himself on our behalf. And it's that gospel hope in which we stand. And it's that gospel hope that we learn from Elijah. And so let's ask God for his help. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for all it reveals in the good and the bad and even in the ugly. Because in that word we see ourselves, provides a mirror for us. And we ask that you help us. Help us to learn from Elijah and his successes as a prophet, as one who boldly speaks your word. And help us also to learn from his weaknesses, the temptations he faced, the disobedience and the apathy and the self-pity. God, keep us from these. And Lord, come today and remind us once again of your overwhelming commitment to us despite all of our weakness, that we are yours and you are ours because your son has taken our judgment, that he has been in our place on the cross and we are reconciled to you. And so compel us and draw us to yourself. Open our lips that our mouths may declare your praise. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.